0: Welcome to Plantopia. I'm your host, David Godori and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Plantopia.
1: A lot of us are concerned about the future of uh, the climate and about uh, food accessibility and availability. I see gene editing as a major tool going forward to try to make agriculture um, more sustainable, to be able to grow as much food as we can uh, without doing damage to the environment and without having to use more land.
0: If I started off by telling you that today's episode is all about transcription activator like effector nuclease, or clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, most people would be thinking that maybe now is a good time to check out the latest episode of Tiger King. But stick around, because we're about to cut through the verbal underbrush and explore the world of gene editing. And how these revolutionary methods can be used to disarm some of the most destructive pathogens that imperil the world's food supply. That's today on Plantopia.
1: And so I'm just excited about how like, democratic, in a way, gene editing can be. And how many possibilities there are, how many traits we can deal with, and how that's going to take all this knowledge that we've learned for decades about plant immunity and how pathogens interact with plants and be able to translate that to tangible outcomes in the field. Hi, I'm Morgan Carter, and I just finished my plant pathology doctorate at Cornell University, and I'm about to move to the University of Arizona.
0: So today we're going to be talking about gene editing, uh, a topic of which I know very little. But that's okay. I know a lot about editing. I've been an editor for many journals, uh, and my job is to go into somebody's manuscript and delete words, add words, less often than I delete, and move things around in a way that I think makes more sense to the audience. So, how does that compare to the process of gene editing?
1: Well, the nice thing about gene editing is that uh, editing was a good term for this because we're doing a pretty similar thing but in the genomes of plants. So we can go in and look at genes that we like or don't like and maybe turn them off or on or make small tweaks to them so they work slightly differently or are turned on under different circumstances. So we're just going through and making small edits in a plant genome instead of in a manuscript.
0: So, how does this differ from what might be looked at as uh, production of a genetically modified organism, a a GMO?
1: So, with a genetically modified organism, we're often taking something that's uh, what we call a transgene. So, we're moving something from one organism into uh, another. So, it might be moving a bacterial gene into a corn plant. And this is going to give us a new trait that we wanted in that corn plant, but we never would have gotten it just by typical plant breeding or mutagenesis, uh, which are kind of older approaches. It's also a lot clunkier technology to make a genetically modified organism. With the new gene editing techniques, we can make much smaller changes and much more targeted changes. So we're often just relying on what's already in the plant or in close relatives. and fast-tracking a process that we could do with traditional breeding but that would take years uh, to get the same kind of plant out with gene editing we can just uh, do it within a year or two and it's a lot faster and a lot more targeted.
0: So at the end of the day you end up with something like the same result of conventional breeding but by a much more rapid methodology.
1: Yes and that's an interesting thing is that A plant that's been gene-edited, you may not be able to distinguish it at all from a plant that was traditionally bred.
0: Is it, in the view of the regulatory agencies, a a genetically modified plant then?
1: So currently, um, we're getting a big old update to how genetically modified organisms are regulated across U.S. agencies, as well as how gene editing will fit into that. And gene editing has mostly been, uh, has come under this term kind of a plant breeding innovation, because you can get to the same result as you would with plant breeding. And therefore, it's not uh, subject to as much regulatory oversight as genetic modification is, um, as long as you aren't adding in any new genes. So if you're just making deletions or small, really small changes that you could get to through traditional breeding or mutagenesis, you don't have to worry about going through all of the regulatory hoops. However, that doesn't mean that gene-edited uh, plants that we are trying to eat aren't going to be safe and checked for safety. They'll still be subject to the same food safety standards that um, all food that we consume is.
0: And are the changes that are introduced through gene-editing heritable as well so they become a part of the evolutionary process of the plant going forward?
1: Yes, yeah, so changes that are introduced by gene-editing are uh, hopefully heritable. If you're that's what you're trying to do, but sometimes you might be making changes that then aren't carried on and are only used um, for breeding something in the next like, and then you would use the hybrid. So there's a lot of options to whether or not you want that change to keep going, or if you want it to uh, just alter like for the next step, and that's not actually the plant you would be um, selling or like uh, commercially using. But assuming you're trying to make something like a more disease-resistant plant, yes, that change would keep going as long as you kept getting seed from those plants.
0: These plant and pathogen systems have been at each other for millions of years. And they have co-evolved a variety of attack strategies and defense strategies. So it would seem like you've got a Target rich environment here uh, in the plant of traits that you could change. Uh, How do you know what to go for? What chooses the target for gene editing?
1: I think we've learned a lot from just basic plant breeding and incorporating resistance genes uh, over the years and seeing what uh, survives and what gets easily beat by the pathogen. So, I think going forward, as we pick what to focus on for gene editing, we're looking for genes that um, will be robust in stopping the pathogen and won't be easily overcome. And that's something that I think we don't always know whether or not something will be easy. But the goal would be to try to uh, edit genes in plants that are universally targeted by a pathogen. So, it seems like they're really important and would be very difficult to overcome. I think those would be like the highest priority. And then it may depend plant to plant on what is more important. If we're focused more on a, a virus, maybe there's, you know, certain like elongation factors or things that are the like primary target for editing in that plant because viral diseases are the most important uh, versus something that's, you know, where a fungus is the most important, we might have to have a different approach to which genes we're targeting.
0: So what are some of the high-value targets that have been chosen already? I, I'm, I'm thinking of something like uh, MLO resistance in barley to powdery mildew. It, it was originally developed from, uh, from mutations. And it's been remarkably stable for more than half a century. And it's a, it's a very small change in the genome. Is there anything like that that has been successfully targeted using, uh, using gene editing?
1: So there's a lot of research ongoing to find targets um, and develop them in labs. And a lot of this has been done in academic labs, which is one of the cool things about gene editing, is that we're moving away from having to have these really long regulatory processes and only be able to focus on You know, the big money field crops um, and it's only being done in agribusiness. But now we can have more like smallholders and um, academics and NGOs and things developing their own gene edited crops because uh, the technology is a lot smoother. There's a lot more research on it at this point and um, the regulatory aspects aren't as uh, much of a hurdle. So it's interesting to see what work is starting to come out of different labs uh, as everybody's applying this to their favorite plants. One of the interesting ones from my perspective, because I have been working in Dr. Adam Bogdanov's lab at Cornell and we work on um, rice plants a lot. There are many bacterial diseases that where the bacterium is targeting Uh, sugar transporters in the genome and turning on sugar transporters in uh, the plant and that is beneficial to the pathogen as it's infecting and it's actually targeting a specific promoter sequence in those sugar transporters so we can gene edit away that promoter sequence uh, and see if that changes it so those sugar transporters can't be turned on and then the pathogen can't infect and as we find that those are important across multiple pathogens or um, at least across multiple plant species, that I think is a really good target for bacterial resistance that a lot of labs are looking into right now.
0: Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. So where are we now in the application of the technology? Uh, Is it a technology that is primarily confined to a few leading research labs? Has it become a more standard practice in uh, developing new plant varieties? Or is it actually quite commonplace?
1: Gene editing has become pretty commonplace um, in many academic labs um, and industry labs because it is fairly easy to use once uh, you've started to apply it to each plant. It took, it's taken a while and certain plants are going to be more amenable to uh, the process that you have to go through to gene edit a plant. And so there's still a lot of you know active research to try to uh, make it more efficient but like many labs across the country and across the world are working on gene editing their favorite traits and their favorite crops and trying to use it to solve a problem commercially there um, are not a lot of gene edited plants available yet but there are a lot that are in the pipeline and so the first one that came on the market is actually a soybean oil that actually has nothing to do with disease resistance, but um, the soybean has a different fat content, so it's um, a better oil for health reasons and for storage.
0: Is the technology inherently less expensive and perhaps more readily available in developing countries? Is this something like the, the personal computer for uh, people gaining access to computer technology, where Before, computers were big mainframe computers that took up a building at a university campus or uh, within large industries. Now everybody's one.
1: We're seeing gene editing pop up across the globe in a lot of different countries because the basic things you need are not um, that complicated. However, you still have to put the plant through a process where you kind of break it into um cells that can grow new plants and you are manipulating just those cells so you have to like start with like a plant blob and modify that and that's um that's still a difficult process for some plants and still requires a lot of like time and space and people to be able to uh culture that and that's really where the timeline comes in, and that can be a limiting factor depending on what plant you're working on and what your lab setup is like. Uh, But the actual gene editing components, um, those are much easier uh, to work with than in the past and uh, are pretty widespread.
0: So what are some of the specific tools of gene editing? We've heard the term CRISPR. Uh, What does CRISPR mean?
1: CRISPR is a very long acronym because it was originally identified in bacteria as an antiviral mechanism for the bacterium, Uh, but it's become the shorthand for that uh, same technology being used as a gene editing uh, reagent. And so with CRISPR, that's become the, the new big buzz one because of the ease of use When we're thinking about targeting a specific gene or piece of DNA to be edited, uh, with CRISPR, we have an RNA piece that's going to directly bind to that DNA. So it's a one-to-one situation where you can design it very simply based on the genetic code that biologists are familiar with. You know exactly what you're targeting, and it's very simple to design the RNA component of CRISPR that is going to target your DNA of interest. There are other technologies that were precursors to CRISPR that included talon and zinc finger nucleases. And the interesting thing about most of this technology is that they were not you know, originally created in a lab for gene editing, but they have all come from different sources and then been used and engineered to do gene editing. So with talons, these are actually from plant pathogenic bacteria and they are transcription factors they bind dna and in a modular way that we can control with CRISPR. it came from a bacterial immune system and so it's really highlights how uh, researching fundamental things can sometimes yield really cool new technology if you have an open mind about how to use what you're discovering
0: so physically what are we doing to um to the DNA, are we removing pieces of it? Are we physically changing its function? Uh, what is it at the at the molecular level that we're actually doing?
1: With gene editing, we can do everything from adding in a couple of um, bases, so like single letters of DNA, or adding in whole chunks. If we if we provide that, uh, we also are often uh, changing them out. So making small cuts that then get uh, repaired by the cell. And those cuts can sometimes get repaired so that it's broken and that gene doesn't work anymore. We we made the sentence unreadable. It doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, Sometimes they'll get put back together, but some part we don't want isn't there anymore. So we've deleted something. So it's all about where you target and how many things you target. If you, if you cut twice, you're going to remove the middle piece between the two cuts, for instance.
0: Why is this so important? And why are you so interested in it?
1: So having just finished my PhD... Um, I'm kind of looking ahead at what the next few years will hold and what I'm the most excited about in the field of plant pathology and the field of plant health in general. And for the past few years, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the usefulness of what I work on. And part of what I work on is plant resistance and looking at the specific genes and how they make it so that a plant doesn't get sick anymore. And I realized that you know, this is only useful if we're able to apply that well to making plants um, more resistant, and then that's only useful if it can get out into the world, so if people will buy it and grow it and eat it. And that's how I got really interested in gene editing and biotechnology use, and especially in the regulatory aspects of that as well, because science doesn't stop in the lab. it needs to get out to people. And that's what really inspires me. And I'm so excited about gene editing because I see it as such a useful tool in combination with all the tools we already have to start solving problems at very local levels because it is easier to do and because it can be done by smaller teams, we can move into specialty crops and regional crops and things that might vary based on where you are. And so I'm just excited about how like democratic in a way gene editing can be and how many possibilities there are, how many traits we can deal with and how that's going to take all this knowledge that we've learned for decades about plant immunity and how pathogens interact with plants and be able to translate that to tangible outcomes in the field.
0: So now you're headed for the University of Arizona. What are you going to be up to out there?
1: I'm very interested in how different microbes interact with each other and how that impacts plant disease, especially when you think about how different microbes might be able to shut down plant resistance uh, or might trigger it. And so I am starting to work more and more on bacteria that interact with or live inside of fungi and how that changes whether or not uh, fungi can infect plants.
0: So where do you see the intersection of your postdoctoral work at the University of Arizona and gene editing?
1: I think when we think about what targets are going to be the most resilient for gene editing in plants for resistance, uh, we're going to have to be thinking about the fact that you're not necessarily dealing with one pathogen at a time or one microbe at a time when you're a plant. And so having a better understanding of how pathogens uh, are modulated, like how they are more or less virulent based on who else is in the plant with them or who else is inside of them, is going to help inform what we choose as targets going forward for disease control.
0: Looking forward about, say, five to ten years, what do you see as the impact of this technology on that, uh, on that kind of horizon.
1: I think that as we develop more gene-edited plants and start actually doing field tests, we're gonna learn a lot more about what is resilient and what isn't. And what, because it's hard to do some of the experiments in the lab or in a greenhouse and see what on a broad scale is going to be effective. So I'm really interested to see what holds up as we go forward. And I think that's why I'm so excited that so many groups are using gene editing technology to try to answer a lot of different questions right now because we're going to get a lot of data really quickly and then be able to make much more informed decisions.
0: Why should the average person care about gene editing?
1: A lot of us are concerned about the future of The climate and about uh, food accessibility and availability. And I see gene editing as a major tool going forward to try to make agriculture um, more sustainable, to be able to grow as much food as we can uh, without doing damage to the environment and without having to use more land. And so, gene editing can be used for things like drought tolerance uh, as the climate's changing and we may get more regular weather patterns. It can be used. For uh, increased nutrition or different nutrition, which could be really great for areas that rely on just a few different kinds of food as their nutritional source. So I see just a lot of opportunities for uh, people who care about where the world is headed in terms of environmental impact um, to be supporting gene editing and the use of that in agriculture to make a more environmentally friendly food system.
0: That's interesting. It seems uh, that even if you might not care about these issues, they nonetheless have a major impact on you.
1: Yeah, I think we don't always know everything about everything we eat. And it's hard sometimes to make the right decisions about what is the most environmentally friendly thing I can buy right now. And even as a plant pathologist, I don't always know the right answer to that. But I see increasing plant genetics to so that a plant can withstand anything that's thrown at it as a really good way to make agriculture more environmentally friendly, which is something that really drives me. I guess it's a very millennial thing for me to care about um, and be all into, but environmentally friendly agriculture is weirdly something that drives me into wanting to use biotechnology in my food.
0: For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradine, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karati. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia.